Hello and welcome to this podcast edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. How worried are you about a recession? How about a bear market? Well, according to my guest, you should be worried about both. We are starting a two-part interview with influential economist David Rosenberg, who recently set up his own independent macro and market research firm, Rosenberg Research and Associates. For the last decade, Rosenberg was chief economist and strategist at Canadian asset management firm Gluskin Chef. Before that, he was chief American economist at Bank America Merrill Lynch and was consistently ranked an all-star analyst by institutional investors wherever he hung his hat. He is considered a must-follow and a must-read by retail and institutional investors alike, especially his daily Breakfast with Dave newsletter. In part one of our discussion with Rosenberg, we asked him to cut to the chase and tell us why he believes a recession is imminent in the U.S. Well, because I'm watching the data. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people out there that watch the stock market. Which is a leading indicator. Uh, Well, actually, I I would change the tense and say it it was Was a leading indicator. It's, uh, it's, you know, I've, I've, I've actually run regressions on this and looked at the correlation between the economy and the stock market, uh, and it's practically evaporated. The stock market today has become a commodity. There's hardly any liquidity in any given day, and uh, the most powerful buying source this whole cycle has been share buybacks. So when you get to a point where the share count of the S&P 500 is down to a 20-year low, uh, you know, it's like basically, uh, you know, in the commodity sector, you're closing nickel mines. So why is nickel up 30% in the context of a flat economy? Well, because there's a supply side of the equation. Every price is dictated by demand and supply. So we've taken a lot of the supply out of the marketplace. And that's reflected in the fact that the number of publicly traded companies is way down, that a lot of money is going into, through private equity, into private companies? Is that what you're saying? Or just the stock buybacks, well, which is com- taking stocks, to, yep, publicly to, traded stocks a- out of the market? Absolutely. It's the, okay. it's the combination of the three. What I'm trying to say here is that the structure of the equity market is far different than it's been in the past. The relationship between um, equities and the real economy uh, has practically broken down. Now, look, uh, we'll, we'll get into what I'm looking at for the recession call, but let's, but let's just say that we should really put our historian's hat on. And uh, not every cycle is the same, uh, but there are patterns that reemerge. Uh, and look, there's a lot of emotion involved here. There's a lot of sentiment, a lot of psychology. Uh, the thing about recessions is that they creep up on you. So I remember 12 years ago when I was at Merrill Lynch and I had the recession call on. Admittedly, I was early, early on the call. 2005. No, I was talking more about the uh, excesses in housing in 05, okay. but really the recession call was started in 06 and accelerated in 07. And guess what? The cycle ended at the end of 07. But nobody's right. ever going, nobody's that good that I've ever met, including myself, that's going to pick the day, week, month, or quarter when the recession starts. We'll just have to acknowledge that cycles are cycles. Expansions are a fact of life. Recessions are a fact of life. They're joined at the hip. And so are bull and bear markets. They happen to exist. A recession is not a unicorn. <laughs> it's not a fairy tale. Uh, and so the point that I was making is that, yeah, let's go back to 2007. Uh, the yield curve had already inverted the year before. Everybody's crazy watching the yield curve if it inverts by five basis points or it uninverts by five basis points. And I cannot believe how the market for noise <laughs> has become somehow so lucrative. And, um, and again, the yield curve is the difference between long-term interest rates and short-term interest rates. And when it inverts, it means that long-term interest rates are lower than short-term interest rates. Right. It's really the shape of the yield curve. 
is the spread between long-term interest rates and short-term interest rates, uh, no matter which maturity that you want to rely on, and uh, a curve inversion, which is exactly right when the level of long-term interest rates go below the level of short-term interest rates, which happens about 10% of the time, is a very unusual situation. It typically happens in the tail end or after a Fed tightening cycle, which of course was the case in the past year. Right. And it's the treasury market's way of screaming uncle. Uh, and it's the one thing I think the bond market would probably agree with uh, President Trump, which is that the Fed tightened too far. And of course, this past year, uh, they've been uh, unwinding uh, part of that. But let's go back to that situation back in 07. Nobody believed a recession was going to come. Ben Bernanke is there telling everybody that house prices declining won't have a material impact on the economy. Housing is only 5% of GDP. The problems of subprime shall remain contained, which goes up there with Chamberlain's piece in our time. Uh, so you can always rely on the Fed being a constant cheerleader, uh, I think because they really have to. The yield curve inverted in 2006. And then when it uninverted in 07, everybody thought, well, wow, breathing a sigh of relief. But the damage had already been done because mm -hmm. the yield curve leads. It's not a coincident indicator. On top of that, of course, what happens is that in August of 2007, the Fed starts to cut interest rates. And uh, the markets go wild. Fed liquidity, we're going to get a soft landing, no recession because the Bernanke Fed is ahead of the game. And right. that's what they're saying about the Powell Fed right now. I suppose 12 years ago was just uh, too long for people to remember that the S&P 500 from mid-August of 2007 to the peak in mid-October of 2007 uh, was up 11%. Like that was a real melt-up and everybody thought we have dodged a bullet mm -hmm. without even realizing that the recession at that point was two or three months away. So uh, I mentioned that I'm focused on the data. Right. And I'm focused on monetary policy. I know historically that in the post-World War II period, there have been 13 Fed rate hiking cycles, and everybody is still talking about the Fed easing. But remember, the Fed was easing in the summer, fall of 2007. But what happened in 08 and 09 was all the lagged effects of the previous tightening that they had implemented in 2005 mm -hmm. and in 2006, because there's inherent lags that are long and variable uh, and insidious. Uh, but the lags are long. They can be between 12 and 36 months. So we're still going to pay the price for the over-tightening by the Fed that President Trump still complains about today. Right. Well, that happened well, in well, 2016 uh, to 2018, uh, right? Uh, uh, that's right. right. And everything, that, and, and so this will play out next year. Okay. Unfortunately, in an election year, and everything the Fed's doing right now will have the lagged impact in 2021. In 2021, all the economists will be calling for recession. I'll be calling for recovery. Okay. But, so, but just stop there, because in, in, a, in a presidential election year, usually the uh, administration pulls out all stops to make sure that we don't fall into a recession. You're saying it's already baked into the cake because of the Fed tightening cycle that right. we've already seen. Right. Look, f fiscal policy also, it's, you, you don't have fiscal policy snap your fingers and everything is just uh, hunky-dory. And plus, let's face facts, we have a fiscal deficit of 5% of GDP. We have a trillion-dollar deficit right now. The incremental benefits of deficit-financed stimulus is going to have an imperceptible Im impact. Uh, this is not uh, the Reagan tax cuts that were implemented when the debt GDP was 30%. Mm. So the first thing you learn in Economics 101 is you learn about the laws of diminishing returns, which is what we experience in life. Too much of a good thing, the incremental benefits start to wear off. And that was we saw that firsthand with the with the Trump tax cuts, which had no real multiplier impact like the Reagan tax cuts did, because the starting point on the debt was so much higher. 
So the incremental benefits are actually um, very small. And, we're, and, and look, there's no debate. We lived through that. Where is this 3% growth we were supposed to see? Right. <laughs> when, we saw it with the fiscal quarter. stimulus. Right. But so put us you know, in, in the context of what you just described. Where are we now? What are the kind of com- comparables? Well, it's, um, you know, you, you, what you do is you follow where the shocks are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's go back to um, the early 90s after the Fed tightening cycle. The policy shock hit what? It hit commercial real estate. Uh, and then with a lag that had an impact on all the other components of GDP, and we had a recession. What do you know, a recession? People don't remember. I've been around 35 years doing this, but I'll tell you that in 1990 and 91, we had a recession that, what do you know, nobody saw coming. And it started in commercial construction. And then because all these various components of GDP have what economists call partial correlations, it's a domino game. Uh, and that's what happened. So oh. what, what are you seeing now, Dave, that's convincing you? And, and, and l- let me just go back because in, it was in 2018 that you predicted that the U.S. would be in recession in 2019. Yeah. So something's delayed it. What, what's delayed it? Well, l- let me just – I'm going to get there in exactly right. 20 seconds. Okay. I'm just building the straw man right now. So we talked about the early 90s, late 80s, commercial construction. Then in the late 90s, it's the dot-coms. Once again, everybody is dreaming up the reason why the dot-coms, they're just, it's, gonna, it's just a dot-com story. No, it was actually a deflationary detonation of the technology capital stock writ large, and then it had its impact uh, on other sectors, by the way, including hirings and including employment and ultimately the consumer. That's a recession, again, that nobody saw coming mm-hmm. heading into the early months of 2000. Then the last cycle, of course, we just talked about housing. It started with housing. But it didn't end with housing, did it? It ended with financials, it ended with capital spending, ended with the consumer. The economy is a living thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an organism, it's like the body. And you don't shock one part of it without there being lagged effects on other parts. So, so let's take a look. Shocked? What's been shocked well, okay. so far? We just got a set of housing numbers, existing home sales were up, everybody's sort of giddy about the housing market. It's interesting that nobody talks about the fact, and when I mention this statistic, people actually go go look at it to see if I if I'm actually right. Did you know that residential residential construction in the GDP data has contracted now for six of the past seven quarters? Six of the past seven quarters, there is a minus sign in front of the residential construction component of GDP. That's big. Well, not just that, but that's only happened in the past, by the way, in the context of an economy heading into recession. <laughs> or in a recession. Mm-hmm. Well, that was actually the byproduct of the Fed rate hikes. Then what's the sector that actually came under the knife that's actually in its own technical recession is non-residential construction, commercial real estate, which also is intersensitive. And people don't know that this segment of the economy has actually not been flattened its back, but has been contracting for the better part of the past five quarters. And then we have this trade shock, right? We have this trade shock that's had right. an influence on exports. Oh, which exports are only down five of the past six months. What a great economy. And then we have capital spending uh, because businesses right now, they don't know you know, what the outlook is on trade. Uh, they don't know really what the outlook now is on fiscal policy heading into this election year. Capital spending now is in a recession. So you see, starts with housing, goes to commercial construction, exports, capital spending. What I know about history of the economic data I know about the relationships between the various components of GDP. So, for example, you don't see capital spending contract. Business don't just stop the capital spending. With a lag, they will start to cut back on 
their employment, their, their employment hours right. and bodies. And, and actually, it's interesting because everybody focuses on the non-farm payroll numbers first Friday of every month. Absolutely. But, but half those numbers are actually from the birth death model that the BLS deploys to account for new business creation. Meanwhile, if you look at the data, new business creation and applications for new businesses is actually running negative now year on year. Half the growth is coming from really a, a guesstimation from the BLS. Nobody seems to really realize Zero that. Zero flavor statistics. Maybe the, yeah. What I'm noticing is that people will talk about the shiny engine on the labor market without opening up the hood and mm -hmm. looking at looking at the engine, and the engine is sputtering. We can see that in the uh, job opening labor turnover survey, what's called the JOLT survey, which comes out from the Bureau of Labor Statistics every month. Job openings down, hirings down, layoffs up, and vol voluntary quits, which is what I always call the, the take this job and shove it index, because that measures people's willingness to jump from one job to another job is actually uh, going down right now. But the contours of the labor market are starting to deteriorate. And what do you know? In the past two months, retail sales volumes, retail sales and in inflation-adjusted terms have been negative two months in a row. So it's starting to hit consumer spending, which is, is the engine of growth in this economy. Well, it's a, not just the engine of growth, but it's such a big component. Mm -hmm. I mean, consumer spending is 70%. 70% of GDP. Well, think if we, well, think if we had a, a we had, we, let's say we had the S&P 500, and we had one stock that was 70%. Now, of course, we had the fangs, yes. but, th but that's what we're talking about. It, it's, it's, it's one of Bob Farrell's classic rules about how do you define a healthy market and an unhealthy market. Right, you Bob Farrell, legendary yeah. technical analyst at Merrill Lynch. And a longtime mentor of mine. Right. Uh, that, that markets are, are strongest when the breadth is wide and it's, it's weakest when the breadth narrows to a handful of blue chip names. Well, the consumer is a blue chip name. It's 70% of GDP. Mm -hmm. So what if I looked at GDP uh, on a breadth basis? Because it is difficult to get outright GDP negative unless the consumer goes negative because of its size. But what if I told you, for example, that the median, the median sector of GDP hasn't been growing for the past two quarters? I don't think you'd say, I don't think you'd say wow, that's really great diffusion in the economy. Mm -hmm. No, it's a very narrowly based growth. And then what if I told you that 30% of GDP is already in a recession. So that's the manufacturing. They're not just manufacturing. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, that's part of it. Uh, commercial construction, I said before. Housing, mm -hmm. there's various components. The, the, the only two components of the economy, okay, that are in a growth phase, mm -hmm. consumer spending and state and local government. That's it. So 30% of the economy is actually in a technical recession. Negative second quarter, negative third quarter. Uh, let's look at the outright GDP numbers, even with the, the consumer in there. 3% growth second quarter, sub 2% third quarter, and all of a sudden we're very close to zero in the fourth quarter. The, the street economists are still close to two. The New York Fed and the Atlanta Fed are basically now at a fraction of a percent. My bean count, uh, looking at the high frequency data, is we might even see a minus sign for the fourth quarter. And nobody's talking about that. In GDP. In GDP. GDP no is- No one is talking about we, that. We, in my opinion, well, um, I guess that's probably right. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing I'm seeing in the leading indicators telling me that things are going to turn around. You know, you've got these people talking about the global purchasing managers indices bottoming out and improving the past three months. There's just sentiment measures. But if you go from, say, 45 to 46, you improved, but you're still contracting. You're just contracting at a slower rate because anything below 50 is, is a negative. So what you're saying, oh, you're saying is a positive is basically something that's a negative, but wasn't as negative as much the month before, doesn't really resonate with me. Uh, the OECD leading indicator, 
okay, which is the gold standard for leading indicators. You really don't even have to know right. anything else. Has declined now. of economic developments, and that's 37 countries I, or members, and it's 80% of trade and everything else for, investments in this yeah. in the world. Forgive me for all the acronyms, but I'm an economist after all. No, exactly. Uh, so <laughs> I would expect nothing so less. So this is called driving, looking through the front window, as opposed to what most other economists do, which is just gaze through the rearview mirror. Um, it's down 21 months in a row. Okay. So people talking about that there's some lift coming because mm -hmm. they're focused on because they're letting the stock market dictate their economic forecast instead of just looking at the data and the stock market will figure it out at some point or maybe it won't. So we we led the world essentially our economy you know out of recession from from the financial crisis and we are lagging the world. I mean the rest of the world has slowed before we did, correct? What role do we have now as far as are we talking about a global recession? So uh, I really wish I had a cheery story mm -hmm. for you. If we could dial back the clock in 2010, I probably should have had a cheery story for you. We were coming off the bottom, and there's a long runway for growth ahead. But let's just face facts. We're more than 10 years into this thing. So it's run, it's run out of steam, essentially, and you're seeing it slow and, in some cases, reverse. It, it's, it, and, and it was never a real recovery. Mm. It was never— it And was, why, do you, why do you say that? I mean, because, obviously, the— the optimists uh, on looking at the scenario of the recovery from the financial crisis were basically saying, you know, it's actually a good thing that growth is slow because it's, it's going to extend this cycle, which in fact it has. I mean, this is the longest economic recovery we've had, right, in the U.S. So, you know, wh why hasn't that been a positive rather than creating bubbles and rather than, you know, accelerating and then kind of crashing? We've actually had, you know, a prolonged period of kind of steady growth, even though it's been subpar. Well, look, uh, wrong with I, that I hear, well, <laughs> you know, I hate to use this sort of medical analogy, but it's like, uh, you know, you, what, here's what you're telling me. You're telling me the patient's alive and it's been alive for a long time and it's really on, on life support. Mm-hmm. So let's just look at the let's let, let's let, let's just look at the situation. Or honestly. it's holding its own. It's maybe not on life support, but it's been holding its own, and it's continued to, to chug along and breathe and eat and not move much. If if, if you <laughs> go if you go from the two thousand cycle peak to the two thousand seven cycle peak, you're going to see that the level of global debt at the household, business, and government level uh, went up. 20% faster than the increase in global GDP, uh, which is the income to support that debt. Right. And we know, look back at that, and we call that the mother of all credit bubble cycles. Well, I would say that this is the mother of all credit bubble cycles on steroids because, well, in that last cycle, debt went up 20% faster than income globally. <laughs> this time it's gone up 300% faster. Wow. Now, that's com combined debt. My understanding is that the consumer uh, pretty effectively deleveraged during the last 10 years, but that the government debt, sovereign debt, and also corporate debt has just exploded. Right. Right? S right, right. So firstly, I would say that when you look at household debt ratios in the United States, which is what you're referring to, mm -hmm. it only looks good relative to the mortgage insanity of the last was. cycle. Okay. And so, right, but actually uh, at the current level of household debt to income is the second highest peak of all time. So I would just submit to you that if you wanted to actually just compare, you know, it's like when people say to me, uh, well, the market's not expensive because it's not nearly where it was during the dot-com period. 
So why would you compare valuations today to when, you mean some of these companies, you couldn't even calculate, they had no earnings, their, their multiples were infinite. So people like to say that, yeah, that's right, the household balance sheet's in really good shape, but relative to the most insane bubble of all time. But why would you use that as a benchmark? It's the second highest debt ratio, actually, this stage of the cycle on record outside of that um, period in uh, 06 and 07. Savings but rates are up, what, running around 8 or 9%? Well, again, very unusual. That much is true, but they, uh, you know, the, the, the Commerce Department changed the definition of the savings rate several years ago to include uh, non-incorporated businesses. The, but that point is taken. I mean, these are all the arguments people say people have enough savings, the balance sheet's in great shape. Okay, so then explain to me why real retail sales are negative mm -hmm. two months in a row. Why is it that we're seeing all of a sudden a decidedly more mixed performance coming out of... Uh, the retail sector. So maybe uh, someone's got to explain that you should be doing a lot better. Household balance sheets are in great shape. I, I don't quite buy it. But so uh, but there's no doubt that the bubble this time, the big bubble was on corporate balance sheets. Mm -hmm. And if I draw you the chart of corporate debt to GDP, it actually looks like the mortgage debt to GDP of 12 years ago. Uh, and every country's different. In Canada, Canada, the household debt income ratio is higher today than it was at the peak in the US back in 06 and 07. And um, you know, you got the banks, SOEs over in China, you got a Standard huge house, mm -hmm. right, uh, housing bubble over in Australia, and uh, maybe the only a few countries aren't in a classic debt bubble. Germany, you could point to, and maybe a couple of Scandinavian countries. I'm talking about the globe. I'm just adding up everything about mm. the world, and that's right. I'm not differentiating between household, government, and consumer because it's just all one big debt albatross. On that note, we are going to conclude part one of our interview with David Rosenberg. Next week, we will find out how bad this debt albatross could turn out to be for the U.S. and the rest of the world. In the meantime, for more information on Dave's new firm, Rosenberg Research & Associates, go to WealthTrack.com. And please join us for the second installment next week. As always, make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one. 